I'm not, I'm not buying into that one. I don't buy the narrow eyes story. Uh, that's that's a. Uh, cool. I don't think James Henderson's got narrow eyes. In fact, I think he's got more like Zuma eyes. He's got uh, his face on the other side of the what are we talking now? We're making it's up like, I don't know, dude. You, went down, you got on this train, bro. I'm just trying to get us off it, man. <laughs> What's up, hustlers? Welcome to the Matt Brown Show. Journalism. Journalism is, in fact, history on the run. And the courage of journalism has to be respected because it is the protection between people and any totalitarian rule. The story of South Africa's possible state capture by Zuma and the Guptas is very well known. But what you may not know is how one small team of journalists were largely responsible for shining a light on the happenings inside the presidency, which ultimately led to the avoidance of state capture. Alec Hogg is one of those journalists. And in this episode of The Matt Brown Show, we explore how the world of misinformation, fake news, and social media can combine to influence the business community of South Africa and affect the economic fabric of an entire country. As entrepreneurs, it is vital to understand that information and knowledge are two currencies that will never go out of style. So without further ado, enter Alec Hogg. Hey guys, welcome back to another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. I have with me none other than the man, the legend from London, Alec Hogg, the founder and publisher of biznews.com. Alec, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. First time I've ever been uh, described in those terms. Usually it's a very different uh, description, but cool, I'll take it. Thanks. What is that different description? I'm dying to know. <laughs> Uh, uh, shithead, um, uh, uh, fake news purveyor. That was what uh, Iqbal Survey called me. He called me the king of fake news. Can you believe that? Are you he serious? Said, I'm the bell pottinger of South Africa. Anyway, uh, I guess if Iqbal is insulting you, then it's, you're in a good place. Dude, well, look, I think that's a compliment personally. I think that's something you can hang your hat on. You know, fake, Mr. Fake News. Fuck, that's legendary. Really, well done. How do you get yourself out of that? Imagine. Because kind of like it's like if you throw enough mud against the wall enough times, that sort of thing's going to stick, right? <laughs> yeah, and it, it's actually it's, uh, seriously uh, you can see a lot of that happening nowadays because during the run up to uh, the release of Gupta Leaks in 2017, there was a lot of rubbish that was thrown around, and uh, the Guptas and Bell Pottinger. Uh, and I suppose some of the guys uh, alongside them were making up, inventing things. Uh, there was quite a lot of uh, crap written about me on uh, on social media by these, not just the bots, but some real-life people. Uh, and the crazy thing about that is that some of that mud does stick. Anyway, you can't defend yourself. I've, I learned long, long ago in this business that it doesn't help to or try and defend yourself because you, those people who want to believe bad about you, the guys that you might have uh, given a hard time in, in various articles going by, uh, are never going to. And those who are going to support you are going to be with you anyway. So we just uh, carry on. Yeah. So um, I don't think you can win a, an argument on social media, you know. 
Um, what is your experience with that? I mean, just a bit before you actually get in, we didn't actually land your story, right? So who are you, dude? Like, why are you on the Matt Brown show? Like, what's your headline story that you want to share with, uh, with our listeners? And then we'll come back to social media arguments because I think it's very relevant. Yeah, I'm a, I guess I'm a social, uh, <laughs> social entrepreneur. I'm a media entrepreneur. I started uh, in newspapers uh, when newspapers were the thing. Uh, left them in uh, the late 80s after I had my own business for a while. Um, went to the SABC as it became legitimate when Mandela was released from jail. After that point in time, it was a bit of a dodgy place to work, as you can imagine. Sure. Uh, when Mandela was released, there was a, a huge unleashing of energy there, and I was lucky enough to work there for three years when it was truly a national broadcast. Uh, National Party didn't have their hands on anymore and the ANC didn't, uh, hadn't actually taken over. So it was great times. Uh, left there to do a job at APSA for two and a half years. Um, it was a once in a lifetime uh, wealth building opportunity and left there uh, to start MoneyWeb, uh, which was in 1997, uh, one of the very first internet companies in South Africa. Uh, I listed it in these on the stock market in 1999, started it literally above my carriage uh, and it built it, built it into quite a nice business. Uh, got a little, uh, a few bumps along the way personally and in 2010 took a, a short sabbatical. During that period, uh, the control of MoneyWeb changed and when I came back in 2012, it wasn't a place that I was too happy to be working at anymore and then uh, was put up put into what they call gardening leave for a year and then 2013 started business. So that's it. Eh? That's my, that's my story. Amazing. So one of, I mean, so let's come back to where we were point of departure, which was social media. right? Um, and I think it's got its pros and its cons. Like everyone's got a view on this. It is social media. Um, and so obviously in the context of entrepreneurship and growing businesses and so forth, it's an incredibly powerful tool. It's a tool that, you know, we historically haven't had available to us to the extent that we can today. Right. Um, so in your world, like what have you learned about social media? Because you currently see, I mean, you've got offices in London, Johannesburg, Dubai, Cape Town, I believe also as part of Biz News, there's MoneyWeb. You've listed this on this thing on the stock exchange. What have you learned about the power of social media when it comes to growing businesses? In your view, like what is the insight currently today that's relevant for entrepreneurs? Yeah. Well, with MoneyWeb, of course, no, the internet was in its infancy. So uh, there was no social media whatsoever. We had, uh, we had a few people approaching us to suggest things like Facebook. But at the time, I guess I didn't have the understanding uh, or the vision to be able to, to pick it up and, and to develop it. So there were, there were lots of people in South Africa, I think just lots of people around the world thinking about social media and how you can connect uh, via the internet. But we've always worked on the basis that the people you serve online are your community, and uh, if you listen to them and you serve them, you'll have a successful business. When it gets onto social media itself, when you're talking about uh, Twitter and uh, LinkedIn and Facebook, there is a, uh, a philosophy that, that, that uh, I suppose you've, you've got to understand right from the beginning. It's unbelievably powerful. If you make a misstep, you are likely to get pilloried and worse. We've seen examples of this. So be careful what you put into social media because clearly 
uh, you might only have 5,000 friends, but uh, very quickly it can reach 5 million people um, because of the virality of it. When it comes to business, a business like ours, there's no question that business would not be reaching half a million people a month if it wasn't for social media. Uh, I had to remember, start from scratch. I wasn't even allowed to take my old uh, subscriber list, which I'd started prior to MoneyWeb in 1997, my, my email list. I had to begin right again from scratch. And to to get to the position that we're in now, to build the brand so rapidly, has really been due to the fact that I did have a social media presence on Twitter and, and on Facebook. And back then, LinkedIn wasn't really that big, but it's it's become a lot more important now since uh, Microsoft took it over. So uh, it, if used judiciously and used sensibly, uh, social media can be an incredibly powerful force for good. Uh, if, however, you uh, allow the, the baddies to take control, then obviously it gets hurt. I, I had that situation man. Um, during the, the Gupta era. Somebody created a fake account uh, in my name, used it to con people into having direct message conversations with them and then acted as though they were me and pushed those into the into the uh, public domain. And the next thing, it goes viral and I'm this big racist, uh, you know, crazy person when actually it's a fake account that they used to do it. So uh, you, you, you find that and, and what... What really bugged me at that stage was that Twitter was not prepared to take this fake account down. Now, things have changed a lot in the last couple of years. But back then, they wouldn't believe me. Or I don't know if they didn't want to believe me it was a fake account. But it was very difficult to get these big organizations to listen to you. Now that the rest of the world is pointing fingers at them, it is uh, the, the, the war against fake news at least has started. Back then, it was just a one-way traffic. Yeah, I mean, I must say, dude, like out of everyone that I have in my network and I like with respect and modesty with insofar as I can take this, like I've got quite a large network of influencers um, and out of all of them, you are the guy that gets way more traction than anyone else, like bigger than minus Bertrand, like I don't care who it is in this country, like you get major, major traction. Um, And so I wanted to, I'm fascinated to find out what makes someone an influencer um, as an entrepreneur primarily, but then more importantly as a business and what that business is trying to do when you're trying to influence thought leadership and leadership and tech and culture and this kind of stuff. What do you attribute your success to um, as a kind of a thought leader and influencer when it comes to information? Sure. Uh, well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad to hear that uh, that's your experience. Really, where I'm coming from, I've been uh, in this field in journalism since 1980. I came straight out of uh, a Europe university. Well, I was lucky enough to get a job as a trainee financial journalist in a, at a newspaper, The Citizen, and then started, started writing. And I remember early on someone saying to me, you're in show business, boy. Just make sure that whatever you write and is attached to your name, has got credibility to it because people will remember you for your mistakes. And if you're going out there and, and writing uh, stuff that hasn't been well-researched or is, uh, is self-absorbed and uh, really just, just uh, if you are abusing the, the little bit of power that you're given uh, in, to be in the media uh, spotlight, then you will be punished in time to come. So treat it responsibly. And I've always done that. I've always 
believe that I'm a channel, I'm a vehicle. Um, there are, I read a lot and I try to learn every day lots of things. I'm up early in the morning. I'm up at 5 a.m. I spend the best two hours of the day between 5 and 7, um, praying, um, meditating, uh, and journaling and doing a bit of reading on uh, my hero, Marcus Aurelius, who lived 2,000 years ago. And that's really what it's about. So set up for the day. Um, try to, to remain in a state where uh, you have a directed mind rather than a mind that gets thrashing around in all different directions. And try learning because there's so much to learn. I mean, the trouble with life is that the more one learns, the more you realize that there's an enormous amount that you don't know that you don't know. So it's, it's really it's this, this ever-widening quest of trying to slowly expand my circle of competence and not making statements outside of that circle of competence because then, you know, everybody's got an opinion. And if you are simply just adding to the noise of opinions that uh, you can pick up off the guy walking down the street, then are you really adding value as a person in the media industry? I've been privileged to have this as a, as a life match. I mean, it has been a, an, an absolute privilege to be doing what I'm doing. I'm um, loving it. I've had to invent things along the way, like business radio. It's, it's, you know, I had to do that because there was no business radio and it seemed like a, a good idea to generate cheap, uh, easy to produce content for money with back then. Mm-hmm. So there have been lots of things along the path, but I've been, I've, I've had a very privileged life. You know, um, it was uh, a guy called Hippocrates who most people remember him for his influence over medicine, but he was also a very smart guy and he, a smart philosopher, ancient Greek, and he said there are three types of man. And uh, the one man is, is, is the person who loves wealth. The other man is the person who loves fame. And the third is the uh, seeker of wisdom. And I put myself very squarely into that third category, the seeker of wisdom. And it's, it's a never-ending journey and a never-ending quest. And as long as I'm learning something new every day, I'm, I'm excited. Well, they say, uh, what's that saying? Um, the smart man learns something new every day. The wise man unlearns something new every day. <laughs> okay. Yeah, think right. about that the one when you meditate un- tomorrow morning. <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you what, what, what I do get, um, and that is that the wise man, is the one who learns from the experience of others. Yes. The not-so-wise man is the one who has to experience it all himself. That's true. That is absolutely true. I'll meditate on that one sometime next week. (laughs) (laughs) Are you feeling lonely on your entrepreneurial journey? Well, it doesn't need to be that way. Check out the Daily Hustle Telegram group powered by The Matt Brown Show and connect with other hustlers from around the world. So look, I, I think, you know, I wanted to stick to this information kind of idea, right? Because you're in the information business, right? And I think when it comes to brand building, storytelling, growing a business as an entrepreneur, you're in the information business too. Having said that, social media has just it's exploded with information, right? There's a lot of it's fake news. There's lots of inauthenticity out there. You don't really know uh, what you can trust, what you can't trust. And so as an entrepreneur, you're trying to become relevant in a space that's proliferated, right? And very difficult to compete unless you've got big budgets, right? Or you're playing in an economy of information that truly is liquid enough to drive scale. So for the average entrepreneur who's trying to 
um, effectively communicate by way of information, content, articles to, to use a, a medium that you basically have built business on primarily, um, less so video. But what is your advice when it comes to building a brand, a communications type idea or landing a communications idea as an entrepreneur in a space like social media where it's just a whole bunch of noise? Like where does one start and how does one become competitive? What's your insights and advice about that? Well, there are a couple of things that I would begin with. Um, and this is uh, against the, the flow, against business schools, against the marketing industry. And that is that a, a tree can only grow as high up as it has roots going down. And you can't just supplant or plant a tree with a 20-foot or 20-meter tree um, and expect that it's not going to fall over. So over many years, and I've been observing business people and, and reading about business um, for literally nearly four decades now, I've noticed that those who are successful are the ones who are authentic and the ones who actually put one foot in front of the other, not those who try and take uh, big leaps. It is a business is like climbing stairs. Uh, you do find that you have almost vertical progress for a short period of time, followed by a period of consolidation. And that's the way it is. But don't, or I've learned, my mistakes have been uh, when I've had the vertical progress and then not stopped and absorbed it, not not consolidated, where I've just continued running in the uh, in, in one direction. And you know, I'll tell you about, a little bit about the internet, the dawn of the internet. Uh, we had a thing then called the dot uh, the dot com era, where it was extraordinary. People would come out of college with a, a degree in something related to computer science. Two of them would get together, start a company. And in double quick time, it would be worth millions of dollars. And the whole idea, there was a land grab. Uh, we had it in South Africa when we listed. We were one of a dozen listings on the stock market. Uh, Eleven of them are no longer in existence. How did we manage to stay in existence? Well, simply by taking the view that the internet is going to grow. And if you can grow with it, you're going to be surpassing growth of pretty much every other industry. Your major thing is just avoid becoming roadkill. Don't try and be brilliant. Don't try and be amazing at something. Uh, don't try and try and get too clever. Just stick to what you know and be authentic. Put one foot in front of the other. You know, Buffett, who's another one of my heroes, I wrote a book uh, about um, Warren Buffett a couple of years ago and been going to his, his dad the way AGMs for more than a decade. He, he talks about a moat and he says that what you should be doing every day is small, little ways, just expanding that mode, just making sure that your your business is is getting just a little bit better. You know, when somebody phones, answer on the first call. Don't walk past the phone when it's ringing. Little things like that. Get uh, get uh, get your, your your team engaged. If they aren't engaged, find out why. Why are they grumpy? Why are they unhappy? You don't want to find out about their their home life, but you certainly do want to give them an environment at work that. Uh, the, the, within which they can grow because human beings need that. We need to grow. We need our souls need adventure. Mm -hmm. You can't uh, go to an office and uh, be bored stiff and expect that you, you're going to be helping that company's moat to grow. And it, it, 
Makes it just takes time. Uh, business, great businesses, all take time. There are lots of people. Uh, I was talking to a guy this week who said he's got this great opportunity to buy into the company he works for. They did 24 acquisitions in the last year. Please, would I have a look at their, their prospectus and balance sheet? And, uh, you know, I've looked, I just looked at, it, looked at him, I think he's crazy. There's no way that you can do one acquisition a year and, and hope that you can bet it down successfully. 24, that's telling me that it's driven by ego, it's driven by uh, self-will run riot, it isn't driven by business sense. And I would tip that business to probably not be here in a little while. So those are the, the you know, the basics, just stuck in life. You know, you can't become a, a good person uh, overnight, you have to work on your defects of character. You have to work on your bad habits. You have to work on showing up, on, on, on being there, and being someone that, that others can rely on. It's the same way in business. Yeah, I was interviewing uh, Robin Wheeler the other day, the author of Death is the Ultimate Orgasm. Do you know Robin Wheeler out of interest? <laughs> I don't. Are you stuck in the title? I know the name. I heard the name. <laughs> Do you want me to say that title again? Death is the Ultimate <laughs> Yes, I know. What a name, eh? It's but but basically, we're talking about this whole concept of like speak because his whole thing is like live your live your own truth, you know. Um, and you know, the, and I think that's kind of what you were saying about growing where you planted. Like my favorite, my most, my favorite tree in the world is the bamboo tree, right? Because when you plant it for five years, it does absolutely fuck all. It doesn't grow. It just stays the same height for five years, and then within a week. After five years, it grows to 90 feet, right? So in that five years, all it's doing, it's growing its roots. And that's what I find a lot of entrepreneurs like don't really do. They, they, they're persuaded and confused and romanticized by what everybody else is trying to say on social media, which is a lot of the times like not true. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if we all actually lived our Facebook timeline? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like we would all be like the happiest people on earth and billionaires, right? <laughs> but, it, but in reality, we we're, a lot of us are just miserable. <laughs> Mav? <laughs> So, uh, but I mean, but that's kind of like your point, right? It's just speak your truth and kind of, you know, do what you need to do slowly and progressively and do things well every day. True or false? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I love uh, Malcolm Gladwell because uh, he's a he's an author journalist who actually gets his teeth into things and and, and digs over 
the reality of, of what we see. A little bit like Freakonomics, um, the guys that are on economics, he does it for, for real life things. And I remember watching him in South Africa at the Discovery uh, Conference, one of the very first ones they had, and he was talking about the story of Fleetwood Mac and Fleetwood Mac Rumors, which is one of the biggest albums of all time. And he said it was, I think, their 14th or their 15th album. And he asked if anyone could remember the 14 albums before Rumors, and clearly not too many people could. But but that gives you an example. You know, that, that, that bamboo uh, uh, event, and, and I like the uh, you know, what you used there because it, it really is – overnight successes have always had a huge amount of work before they get to that point. And uh, rumours is, is an example. Yep, cool. It takes 15 years to make a quick buck, .com. <laughs> so uh, let's do quote of the day. Uh, so, Alec, um, this is your quote for entrepreneurs that, you know, will help inspire them and perhaps provide some perspective on their own journeys. So go ahead. What is your quote? Well, it's, it's based on a, a principle that I have that if you don't keep an open mind, you may as well stop today. Uh, too many people think they got the answers. But we live in such a hugely complex world that making uh, mistakes has is, is, is got to become second nature, but you'll be making more mistakes if you, if you close your mind off. And, the quote comes from a guy called Herbert Spencer, who's not really that well-known outside of the UK, where he was a, a philosopher, more, died more than 100 years ago. He said, there's this principle which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. And if only we could, we could implant that into people's brains before they get onto Twitter, I think the discourse would be uh, of a far better quality. <laughs> and now a word from the daily hustle hey guys so i got this question from um an entrepreneur on my telegram group her name's non clan okay mev <laughs> uh but she says hey man i'm uh, 19 years old and i've been researching and planning my business for one year and six months after my first job i've completed everything including registering i've tried out angels and they all reject my offer and they say it's regarding my age and that they think I am a risk. How do I convince investors to give me a shot? So, yeah, look, I mean, investors, do you want to back the jockey who has a track record? So if you don't have that, like, you know, it's natural for investors to be right in being or feeling risky that you are too young. But let me tell you a story. My first business uh, was a record label. So in a previous life, <laughs> I was a DJ. Um, and that uh, I started producing my own music and eventually I started the record label um, and it became quite successful. We were releasing a um, hundred different uh, tracks a year all around the world. Uh, we were selling stuff online, etc. But I was about 19, 20 at the time, right? And I didn't let anyone stop me. I didn't let any narrative or the naysayers, you know, are you too young or there's no margin in vinyl or it's too expensive. that right like you are in control of your own destiny like forget the investors right forget anyone else that doesn't completely back you as an entrepreneur right because you know your worth otherwise you wouldn't be on the telegram group you wouldn't have asked the question in the first place because i know that you back yourself just don't get stuck 
in the bullshit narrative of the naysayers who will enjoy watching you fail you know um, when you're young the only person that you really need to back is you you know and that's a really big lesson to learn very early on in your career but as you become more mature and as you learn more about business and you start to scale and you start to employ people and sell businesses like I've done all those lessons or that main lesson right in the beginning will, will cut, like just pay countless dividends moving forward right you need to know your worth right I don't care how old you are right so always back yourself hope that helps see you again soon ciao Sorry, I'm going to ask you now, what, what's your favorite social media channel right now and why? For information mm. distribution, what is it? Uh, uh, we know Facebook's much more powerful than Twitter for us, um, much more powerful. Uh, Twitter is cool and it's, it's, uh, it's exciting and you'll come back quite quickly. But there's no doubt that uh, your virality comes from Facebook. I've got two Facebook um, Presences. I've got a, a private page, supposedly, that goes up to 5,000. And then there's a public page. Uh, or, um, and on that one, it, it's, I think it's around 30,000. And I spend a lot more time. So, for instance, on Twitter, I'll, uh, when we've got a – this morning, I finished off a – did a lot of work yesterday listening to Ntlantla Nene because when Nenegate came along in 2015, I was quite involved in what happened there in reporting about it. And, I mean, it affected my own life. That's one of the reasons I'm sitting here in the UK. But uh, when he was telling us all about this yesterday at the Azonda Commission of Inquiry, he spoke for four and a half hours. It was amazing stuff. So what I did today was uh, my Rational Perspective podcast, which is really where I'm putting a lot of my effort nowadays, um, I went through those four and a half hours, cut back the parts that I thought were really interesting, um, put together a 20, uh, 24 minutes it's worked out to podcast. And then what do you do with it? How do you let people know it's there? Uh, obviously, you, you publish it. So publish it on Simplecast. And that goes into Spotify and, and iTunes and everywhere else. But then to uh, distribute it on social media. So I put a, a short little um intro on Twitter and then uh, a more in-depth uh, illustration of what it's about on Facebook, on my, um, Facebook, my, my public Facebook page and, and supposedly private or that, it's also public. And there is no doubt that the, um, the interest that is generated from the Facebook pages is far, far higher than that from Twitter. So it gives me, and even though on Twitter, I think I'm at about 38,000, nearly 40,000 Followers and more followers on Twitter, supposedly, than on Facebook, but the Facebook impact is more far greater. And I think that's due to the virality of it. When you uh, do get get something that people are interested in on Facebook, uh, it can, uh, it, it can, send, as I said earlier, it can encircle the world. They get to 5 million people. Dude, sorry, Nene Gates, what the hell happened there? Why are you in London? Sorry, now you've got me interested, um, and I'm sure our listeners as well. <laughs> what what happened? If you can walk us through the headline of the of the story there, um, and what did you learn about yourself and about the media um, as a result of the Nene Gates experience? But I think you can, for those of us who don't know, you're going to have to walk us through what transpired and, and then hit us with a punchline about what you learned, etc. So if you could, 
Sure. Well, uh, 2016, uh, everything started really getting into the media spotlight and, uh, and a lot of people were writing about the Guptas and the corruption and all of the stuff that went with it. And that got accelerated in 2017. But actually, the roots all happened in 2015. That is, uh, 2015 is where the Guptas really started getting their tentacles into the uh, South African state. And one of the things that, uh, well, while they were working on the one side to, to do their nefarious deeds within cabinet, uh, Jacob Zuma was putting together the, the plundering opportunity to beat all plundering opportunities. It was a, a nuclear deal, which was going to cost the South African taxpayer a trillion rand. And it was money the South African taxpayer couldn't afford. And it's a, a project the country doesn't need. As we well know, we now have a surplus of power. So what the hell were we thinking about building nuclear power stations? The nuclear power business is uh, notoriously crooked. And the Russians, if you read a book like Red Notice by Bill Browder, um, are kind of uh, that uh, exponential, exponentialized. So uh, if, you, if you put it all together, there was this enormous pressure from Zuma to go ahead to do this nuclear deal because it was the huge, big payoff. It was the payoff to end all other payoffs. It'd been a, a, a similar uh, plundering opportunity in the late 90s, which we call the arms deal. And the guy who wrote about that, he was an ANC MP who had to kind of leave the country called uh, Feinstein, um, Andrew Feinstein. He wrote a book about it called After the Party. And he said that this nuclear deal was going to make uh, the arms deal look like a chump change. Anyway, during this period of time, there was one guy who was standing up against it, and that's the finance minister in Tlantlanene. And he resisted, 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 and eventually he was just bulldozed, kicked out on the 9th of December by Zuma, replaced by an unknown called, uh, I his first name, Diesel David van Royen, uh, who lasted all of two days. But when he arrived, when he was, when Nene was fired and van Royen was put in there, the rest of the world said, oh hell, now South Africa is going to go ahead with this crooked deal with the Russians. They're going to bankrupt the country. They're going to steal it even more blind than they have been stealing it. So let's sell the RAND. And they, the, the RAND collapsed. Uh, shares on the stock market fell between, or financial shares which are, are, are exposed to this, between 17 and 20% in one day. So you wiped out a fifth of your capital in one day. Bonds, uh, which is where uh, interest rates uh, went, that lost about 250 billion uh, RANDs in a day, their value. So... In essence, what happened, and I, I, don't, I crunched all the numbers at the time and I had the fact check people getting on to me and saying, hey, how can you make this number? But uh, uh, it was 500 billion rand, 500 billion rand that the country lost uh, because of this shenanigan. And everybody got a big skrik, uh, including Zuma, who was shaken out of his complacency, the business community who are pathetically uh, um, uh, lily-livered and in many instances, don't have the backbone that they should be showing. They finally found a backbone because they could see the country was going down the tubes. And they, together with members of the ANC top six, managed to convince Zuma on the Sunday to change, get rid of his new finance minister uh, the weekend special, bring back Pravin Gordon, who was the only guy who had any chance of uh, resuscitating the international community's view of the country. 
And that, uh, the consequence of that was that things stabilized. It took a long time for that to have recovered. But it was, that was Nenigate. So what happened with me in, in Nenigate, it was almost the, the pinnacle of uh, the attacks that were made against me uh, publicly uh, by Zuma, by the Guptas, uh, in social media. You know, we, Biz News being my uh, company owned 100% by me was a, a small business relative to the, uh, the big media companies. And we were, I wouldn't say out there, but we were very interpretive of the uh, issues that were going on at the time. And uh, it's now a matter of public record. Uh, when Zup, uh, Gupta Leaks came out a, a year later, that they targeted us. They were going to put us out of business. That was their intention. Go for the kill, they told Bill Pottinger and their London lawyers. Uh, and I guess once you do that to one news organization, the rest of them feel a little bit uh, concerned. South Africa is a country uh, where life is cheap. And um, I don't want to get you know too emotional or dramatic because that's not my way, but it just seemed to make a hell of a lot of sense to find a, a safer location. Uh, which is what we subsequently did. So we came to the UK in May 2016 and uh, globalised the business by expanding or, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the official story was becoming to globalise the business. The, the benefit has been enormous because I've been in an environment with, a, a, you know, low uh, friction on a daily basis, whereas in South Africa we know the friction is high. Um, and by the same token, it lets you think more. And I think I've grown as a as a person, as a journalist, as a um, the the service that I can give to South Africans. We now are um, serving global South Africans. We we we're trying to bring back what's happening in the rest of the world back to the country, back to our country, so that we can all kind of interpret these big waves much better. Let's remember that South Africa is a cork on the ocean. We're less than half a percent of global GDP. We are 50 million people out of 7 billion. If we were an American state, we wouldn't make the top 20 in terms of the economy. So we're a small country, a really, really small country that, that punches above its weight because of remarkable individuals like Jan Smuts, uh, who formed the League of Nations, and of course Nelson Mandela, who has put the world to think differently. So we do punch above our weight, but we still need to know what's going on in the rest of the world. And we're able to do that now uh, from here. And we are a remote company. Uh, we don't have a head office and uh, we don't actually have an office that, that the, our team works from. Everyone works from home. Everyone works remotely. So wherever in the world you might be, uh, again, to use what Warren Buffett recommended, go where the frictional cost of life is the lowest. And then you can think more clearly. And that's exactly why... I came here for different reasons, but uh, am now pretty settled in the UK and, and thoroughly enjoy it. Dude, I, uh, I find that a fascinating story. Um, like the presidency and their cronies, like, you know, their corrupt cronies, I should say, like going after a small business because you're basically a peddler of information, which is true uh, and factually sound and evidence-based, not opinion-based, which I find a lot of, um, you know, influences tend to, to lean towards if that makes sense um so i find it incredibly fucking sad that you have to leave the country of your birth and where you were doing such great work out of fear um and I, that's kind of where i want to deep dive a little bit and double down which is how do you approach fear um when it comes to your position as a journalist and when you look at your integrity around that um i mean what what keeps you up at night 
how do you deal personally with your own fear about the repercussions of speaking the truth? Yeah, well, it's a very different uh, different country now, and it's very different when you aren't in the hot house. Uh, being in the hot house, uh, you know, being at, at home, who knew who was going to be ringing your doorbell? I mean, that was literally uh, the the. We live very public lives as journalists. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't drive around in bulletproof cars and uh, with bodyguards and things. It's it just we are. We, we just you have to be part of the part of the people that you're engaging with. You have to be part of the community. Uh, that's why it, it it was. I would say it was fear, fear that uh, I didn't leave South Africa because of fear. I left there because of logic, just the rationality. You know, we know that people can pay other people to make sure people disappear or people just... I had two friends, two journalistic friends, and I won't uh, disclose their names, but they're pretty, pretty well-known people. Uh, After Gupta Leaks came out, both of them had car accidents. Both of them were lucky to walk away when their cars were write-offs. And both of them uh, say that uh, they believe that their cars were tampered with. So in both of those instances, that's a way, I suppose, that, that in South Africa, oh, just another accident, just another car crash. Uh, it, you, you, you quickly move on. That's not what I was put on earth to do. That's not why I've spent so many years trying to build and accumulate this, this, this limited amount of knowledge, which I can share with, with others or gives me a better context to, to share with others. So fear... Uh, as a journalist, I mean, I'm not, I've worked with people. I've worked with some unbelievably courageous journalists. Barry Sargent, who passed on two years ago, um, was just one of the best. I mean, Barry was, you know, people now talk about uh, investigative journalists. Barry was just way ahead of, of the whole bunch of it. He was taking on Brett Kibble uh, when Brett Kibble was being fated in the media elsewhere. He, he dealt uh, in the underworld. As a, on a day-to-day basis, I mean, he knew stuff that I was even scared he was telling me about. Uh, another, Chris Stain is also in that category. I worked with Chris uh, for, for, for some time. She's a real journalistic thoroughbred, and she wrote this story about the Lost Boys of Bird Island, uh, which, which I know is true because I have evidence, corroborating evidence from people who were involved. But, you know, these are not people who I can pull out and then say, hey, go on the record. But I know Chris as well, and I know her track record. And despite the fact, and I mean, her co-author committed suicide. I said to Chris, "What? Why did he commit suicide?" And she said, "You know, are you going to do the same thing?" She said, "No way. There's, they can't do anything to me." But he's got, he's got a young daughter, um, and you know, question of what we'll do to your daughter unless you pull the trigger, kind of thing. So there are lots of uh, very, very courageous journalists uh, who. I know and have worked with and others I, I, I haven't worked with who uh, just stand, we, we know that, we know what the, the incredible work that has been done by people like Amabungani and, and Jock Poe's book and, and so on and so forth. They, South Africa's blessed with these people and thank God because if, you, if we didn't have that, uh, the, you know, the forces of darkness nearly won. Eh? They nearly, nearly won. Uh, it, was, it was only 179 votes out of, uh, what is it, 5,000 that swung it away from a Zuma uh, dynasty continuing and the president that we have today. 
who is, believe me, a very different kettle of fish. And if I shouldn't say believe me, I should say read uh, Anthony Butler's biography, 400 pages on Ramaphosa, and you'll get a good understanding of who this man is. Uh, just to say that at the least, he's 180 degrees away from uh, the fellow who was running the place before. What's that quote? Um, the only thing that's necessary for evil to triumph, triumph is for good men to stand by and do nothing. And I think that's totally true. But, you know, it was actually the journal, the media that made that happen to influence public opinion. Otherwise, like, we'd still, I don't, God knows where we would be. You know, it's just depressing to yeah. even think about, to be fair. You know, for most of us, time is what we want most, but what we use worst. So why not let Digital Kung Fu make the most of your time by letting us market you, the brand behind the brand. Check out digitalkungfu.co.za to get your hands on our curated content packages specifically for busy entrepreneurs. <laughs> so true or false, uh, we're going to read your statement and then uh, what you're going to do is you're going to say true or false um, and then we can deep dive into some of the, the reasonings why. Okay. Kadlejo, ready for you, dude. All right. So the first question, true or false? Media literacy is a goal, not a process. Uh, false. It's a process. Okay. Media literacy, is that important for entrepreneurs? I think personally it is. Absolutely can be a game changer. Uh, we're in the business of media. Hello. <laughs> uh, thanks to this thing called a smartphone. Um, but media literacy, a lot of entrepreneurs just suck at it, right? Um, they don't know what yeah. to do when they engage with the media. What is the starting point and best process then? <laughs> uh, if it is about the process, not the goal, um, what is the best process an entrepreneur can adopt when it comes to media relations and interacting with journalists such as yourself, for instance? Well, the first thing is to be selective. Uh, we go through a period in the media industry that we went through, or the Americans went through in the late 20s, uh, early 30s, where you had false fake news explosions. You had uh, yellow press. Uh, there were many, many newspapers because suddenly it became, it became possible for anybody to create a, a media organization as it is today. So I would say the first thing in your process is be selective about how you consume and then target and identify who it is or how it is that you'd like to participate or engage in it. Uh, there are media outlets, there are uh, journalists who don't follow uh, the, the, the kind of principles that we take for granted uh, it should be followed in the media. We saw this with the Sunday Times with the whole SARS story where, where they were just played and then they refused to stop and think about what they'd written and they read something like 35 major stories which were all complete bullshit about people and destroyed people's lives. You know, it's, and, and, and they said they were investigative journalists. In, there's a wonderful book that I used to give to my colleagues, um, uh, young journalists who worked with me called The Spike. And it's a, a book that I had the privilege of reading as a youngster. And it is a, uh, it was written by the editor of Newsweek and um, the foreign editor of US uh, News and, and World Report back then, very prestigious publications. 
And it's a novel about this guy, this young journalist who becomes very famous and gets lots of headlines and becomes super well-known in America. Uh, but his, the base of his information are brown envelopes that are handed to him. And he gets to the end of the book and he realizes he's destroyed a whole unit of the, uh, of the CIA. And he gets to the end of the book where he finally the penny drops that the guy who's been supplying him with information was the KGB. So this was all the Cold War you know, in, the, in the 80s and so on. But whoever, uh, as a journalist, uh, you, you, you can either go to the dark side and get used and not ask any questions, and that's what this whole story, or you can stop and think and, and, and ask and not be scared to lose that scoop or that big uh, story that you're going to have. And it's much more difficult to be in the second camp. So as an entrepreneur, seek out those in the second camp. Seek out the areas of, of, of credibility because the headlines and the big numbers are not necessarily what people believe. And we've seen that in, in the media space where there's a massive fragmentation. So I, I love this kind of a, a format that you have now because it is it's me saying it. Uh, it's you, you you asking the questions. This is not fake news. This is coming out of my mouth. If I say something you disagree with, well, cool. You know, that's it. That, it's fine. Uh, you, you can make up your mind. But when I have to start reading somebody else's opinion of what I've said or what somebody else has said and they haven't double-checked it and they've just pulled the headline and they're trying to, trying to get uh, the maximum number of clicks or whatever it might be, uh, then beware because you are then on a very, very slippery slope. And in, in my career in journalism, I've seen lots of people who follow that path uh, who have done something else pretty soon uh, with their lives. They, they aren't around anymore, certainly not in this career. Yeah, we probably should have gone, done a bit of a spoiler alert for that book because now the whole plot's been sold and sold down the river. So no point in reading that book <laughs> unless you want to learn about passing envelopes. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's, it's still worth reading. It's quite a lot of fun, but it's, it's hard to get anyway. So, okay, cool. Cut left. Better, better good. All right. Ready? Yes. Let's go read another one. True or false? Right. Let's go. True or false? It's difficult for many people to tell legitimate information from biased information online. Yeah, that's true, eh? That's true. And uh, I, I get a, a good question. I, I get a, a lot of emails from people because you are in the media and they, they and we've got a big community um, who they want to tip you off. You know, people want to help. But the, the, the garbage that I get sent, I mean, there's a couple of examples. There's, there's a, something that's done the rounds on Twitter and Facebook for a couple of years now, written by Clem Santa about demographics of South Africa and why it's a time bomb. Well, the problem is Clem Santa never wrote it, but it's under his name. So now, you know, Clem is a, is a, he's a great guy and he's a futurist and he's a, he, he does his research, but somebody's gone out there and written this thing about Clem, by Clem Santa, and these poor people who read it believe it's Clem, and as much as Clem keeps telling people that it isn't him, uh, they don't want to believe it. Perhaps they want to believe what they're reading. And another very good example was uh, Alan Swichers, the uh, managing or senior partner at Deloitte, has supposedly written something, the inside story about the ANC elective conference and what happened there. 
when I asked Alan Swickers about it, he said, no, it wasn't. I never did that. It's not me. I don't know who's using my name. But so there's a lot of this stuff. Uh, I, I like Snopes. Um, I, I, I like to just double check things there, and I suggest people should because uh, it, it does work on fake news and uh, immediately identifies a lot of rubbish that's there. But but essentially, whatever you, unless it comes from a very good source, that's why we have a, a partnership with the Wall Street Journal. They're the greatest newspaper in the world. Um, we, one of the things that I, I, I tried to do is to get closer to them because by association, uh, you you can be sure that they have the fact-checking, they make sure that their reputation is high. They don't write rubbish. Uh, similarly, uh, Bloomberg is, is uh, another partner that we have. So when you look at Bloomberg, you look at the Wall Street Journal, and then when you uh, consume things like podcasts where you can hear what the guys actually said, not what somebody thinks he said. Uh, and usually with podcasts, you've got the time to be able to have it all in context. That's the way to consume news. Be very careful of the stuff that gets uh, gets thrown around. But for the ordinary person, you know, it's a hassle. It takes time. Uh, it, it's a rather avoid that and just stick with those sources, those media, consume the media sources that are authentic and you can believe. Love that. Go ahead, bud. All right. True or false? Entrepreneurs don't need media relationships to be successful. Now, that's very true. And I'll, I'll refer you to two books. Uh, one is, uh, you see, I, I, do, <laughs> I do love reading, and there's so much good to learn from Just books. Just don't do One's another one of those spoiler alert things that you do. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. no, no, these are, these, are just, these are just educational. I mean, they just help us to understand the world better. But uh, one is called uh, Outsiders by William Thorndike. And what Thorndike's done is he's taken, uh, I think he's a, a dozen uh, people who've been hugely successful. But I mean, like, seriously proper successful entrepreneurs. Uh, and he goes through their stories. And without exception, they're not media savvy. They don't care about the media. Uh, Warren Buffett has got a little head office of, of uh, 12, I mean, 18 people. If you want to get a hold of Buffett, you've got to work through his secretary, not a media relations person, his secretary. Um, and that's why he doesn't give. He gives interviews only to one person, to Becky Quick, who's, uh, I suppose, easy on the eye, uh, who works for CNBC, and she's built up a relationship Six with him. Sales, baby. And, uh, uh, she, well, and she's also she's real smart, but she's also... Uh, and Buffett's like him. You know, he's, he, he might she, be at least 88 or whatever. <laughs> but she's really whatever. smart, but she's uh, hot. <laughs> but but uh, he, apart from Becky, nobody else really gets to him. Um, and that that is a, a book that I would just strongly, strongly recommend that you read if you want to find out about real entrepreneurship. The other one. Is, is a well-known book and, and it'll be quoted in most people's top five best business books of all time, and that's Good to Great by Jim Collins. And when you read the stories of those companies, the best-performing companies in the world, without exception, and what he did was he took a universe and he found out which are the companies that have outperformed substantially uh, over, I think it was a 10- or a 15-year period, and the chief executives of those companies Without exception, you've never heard of. They have no media strategy. They aren't on the front page of any newspapers. They, they certainly aren't uh, uh, tweeting or uh, in, in, the, in your face. So a media strategy 
and successful entrepreneurship um, can be mutually exclusive. Kadlecha, my boy. Are you ready for two more? I want good ones this time here. Okay. Um, true or false? Journalistic integrity is a critical success factor for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, I think in many ways, um, as a media entrepreneur, if you don't have integrity, you forget it. Uh, you, you forget it. It's, 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 you don't have a business. As a normal entrepreneur, if you, uh, if you don't have integrity yourself, you're in the same boat. So I think that's uh, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. That's all you've got. You know, you've got, as I said, Matt, right in the beginning, um, when I started at the Citizen as a as a twenty year old, um, a very wise guy said to me, still we still friends today, uh, John Mulcahy. He said to me, "You're in show business. Just remember, everything associated with your name is what people are going to judge you on and believe you, uh, and believe whether you're worth them investing time in in absorbing what you you you're selling them. Because I suppose when you write or when you broadcast, that's what you're doing, uh, or not." And uh, if you don't have integrity, you're gonna, you're gonna make, you're always gonna make mistakes. They say don't, don't ever tell lies because then you don't have to have a, a great memory. Yep, your brand is your reputation. That's all you got. That's what irritates me about that story you told me earlier on about, you know, um, these dudes who are writing stuff about you and saying stuff about you that isn't true. I mean, uh, you know, and there's very little you can do about it because you can't exactly turn the internet off. Do you know what I mean? Like if someone sets up a dummy site and goes, Alec Hogg uh, thinks that, you know, blah, 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 and it's all totally untrue, or whatever the case is, like, what are you going to do? How do you turn that, turn that down? The time, it's, it's, it's the world where still, as much as there's regulation in many instances, still anybody can say anything. And like irrespective of whether that's true or not, it's still going to stick. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I find that just something that's deeply unsettling, you know, when it comes to reputation. I mean, I'm in the media business. So are you, uh, we do different things in that, but our reputation is everything. That's why we're talking to each other. Um, and I don't know, I just find it incredibly, you know, disheartening that people can character assassinate you and say things about you that are, are fundamentally not true or maybe have a degree of truth, but don't really tell the whole story. Maybe you misquoted. I mean, I got into, I had a social media thing because it said the word hustle behind me. And then it was like, there was a crew that basically started to complain about the fact that someone else had a show with the name hustle in it. And I was like, I don't give a fuck. I really don't care because I'm sorry, are you trademarked hustle? Is it completely yours? I mean, are you Coke? <laughs> you know, like it, it's just, but you can't win those conversations. Do you know what I mean? You've almost got like your strategy actually is just to sometimes, not in all cases, but sometimes just to let fires burn because you know what I mean? Like people, it's like you only get to trade your dignity at the end of the day. Like if someone's character assassinating you and throwing shit against the wall, trying to hope that it sticks against your brand or whatever, then like you'd have very little recourse. I mean, what are you going to do? And in your case, when you've got like 500 comments or a thousand comments or whatever on one single post, like what do you do? You know, people, some people are going, oh, fake news, etc. You know, and News 24, they switched off comments. Do you remember that? Mm. So and it was all just because people are trolls and they think that because they've got a keyboard they can say whatever they want. And they can. You know, and what do you do with it? 
Like, well, yeah. I, what other people think of me is none of my business. That's the first point. And that's the way I live my life. Uh, I can't worry about what anybody thinks about me. I agree with you that reputation is is very important. And in fact, I had a, uh, a fight with a big newspaper uh, while I was uh, the CEO of MoneyWeb because they ran a series of stories by a guy who'd stolen while he worked for us. I wanted to put him in jail. My uh, fellow directors decided not to, and they, they said as long as he pays the money back, uh, we won't press criminal charges. Um, I, I took a different line on it. Anyway, this guy then pops up and starts writing as a freelancer stories for a big newspaper uh, character assassinating me. And, and I, did go, I did go for a uh, fight back on that one and went through their um, ombudsman and they finally published a story. Um, there was another instance of a, a guy who worked for me. He worked for me. And, and I, I gave him his first his first um, job in life and I was very sad to see him go. But for some reason, he got influenced by this other character and he ran a piece. And I, I went back to him and I said, but it's wrong. You know, it's false. What you've written is not true. We aren't doing what you say we're doing at the company. And uh, he said, I stand by my story. I said, well, how can you stand by your story if it's not, if it's, if it's not correct? So you do get those odd uh, instances. But, but that's, that's, that was when I was running a public company. You know, there were people invested in the company with public money. Now it's my business. And if somebody wants to take a fake Twitter account and write rubbish about me, I worry more about the person on the other end who's been sucked in and been hurt by it. But, but uh, interesting, Matt, it was a very good example of Nene, Nkatla Nene. We spoke about him in Nenegate. And he explained yesterday in the run-up to his, uh, he didn't, but in the run-up to his, his testimony yesterday, there were all kinds of, scuttlebutt going around about about him being corrupt and I got it from a otherwise usually you know reliable source as we say in the business this this person said to me no and then is then is I've got confirmation he's dirty it just doesn't make any sense to me and then I, I, I listened to his testimony yesterday and gone and some guy has made fake whatsapp messages from his wife that they've now circulated They've written stuff about him and, and circulated stuff about him that is blatantly false. And there's the finance minister. But, you know, to me, I get cross about that. About me, oh, whatever. You know, what do I do? I pass on information. Like it, don't like it. You, 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 you want to learn from my experience? Cool. If you don't want to learn, well, go somewhere else. But uh, so I'm not really that important in people's lives. But when your finance minister gets attacked by trolls, in this way, there's always a, an ulterior, uh, an ulterior motive, and that is that's what, what what's despicable. So, where I can, I'll try and expose uh, those kind of uh, misdeeds. Dude, what is your injustice? Right, um, the Injustice League. <laughs> what is the one injustice that you see in the world of information and media? Well, I'm in the media game and, and clearly fake news. And um, in, I go to the World Economic Forum in Davos every year. And a, a couple of years ago, 2017, we were taking a lot uh, yeah, January 2017, before Gupta Leaks came out, we were taking a lot of heat from Bell Pottinger and so on. And I, I'm in this, uh, this grouping of these media guys from 
uh, various parts of the world, running big organizations. And they were just complaining with face, Facebook and Twitter, uh, sorry, Facebook uh, and Google were in the room for the first time with these, with media, with big editors and that. And they were just talking about how Facebook is, is killing the media industry because they and, and Google because they take all the ads away. And when we got to the end of the conversation, um, I had to chip in and I said, you guys are, are, are talking about commerce. I'm talking about a democracy that is under threat here because of fake news. And you, fake, uh, Facebook and, and Google, you allow this face, uh, fake news to be perpetrated. You allow... And of course, I had to throw in the Mandela's name, you know, Mandela name, because they don't really know about us. And so they said, you allow Mandela's dream, his democracy, to be destroyed by people using your platforms. Now, I don't know if anybody picked up on it, but I did talk to the guy from the BBC afterwards, and we got quite close, the head of, of news at, at uh, the BBC. And as a consequence of that, they started doing a lot more work on the whole Gupta story. And... What happened there before Gupta leaks came out? The tide had already started to to turn because the, uh, the the big media in the rest of the world were now starting to take an interest in the Guptas and how they were they were killing South Africa and just stealing it blind. But fake news unchecked uh, can perpetrate so much damage. Dude, um, I have to ask you. James Henderson was the CEO of Bell Passenger, wasn't he? Um, so yeah. if you ran into him in London, cause he's probably based there sometime and, you know, if you ran into him on like, you know, Marlboro drive or some shit, <laughs> would you, uh, would you buy him lunch? <laughs> and where would no, you? No, you no. I, I, I had a, um, uh, in fact, he was a subscriber to our, our premium section, which we thought was quite funny. Um, but he, he, he let his subscription lapse, um, uh, <laughs> after the year, uh, he, I was trying to get hold of him. I was trying to talk to him, trying to find out, you know, what the hell is going on here. This is before Gupta leaks. Um, and he agreed to see me. He then, uh, messed me around a little bit. I went into London unless they just outside. So it's, it's not a, it's a half hour journey in, but you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a, a rescheduling of your diary. So I went in for the two o'clock meeting, good time. Uh, five to two, his secretary phoned, oh, terribly sorry, James is, uh, is unavoidably uh, delayed. Can we make it at four o'clock? So now, oh, gee, I have to hang around for two hours drinking tea, uh, but that's okay. It was a nice day, so I did that. And at four o'clock, uh, I arrived for his meeting, and you know what happened. Uh, as I was about to walk into the place we were supposed to meet at, his secretary phoned to say, oh, terribly sorry, James has gone on holiday. So yeah, he's he's not my favourite friend. I had a I had a phone call from him where he was trying to explain to me uh, that Bell Pottinger were not behind all the fake news bots and a story that we'd written at the time, and I just let him have it. So yeah, then I think if we're walking down, he's a little guy as well. So um, I'm, not, I'm not the biggest, but I'm just a, around six foot, and I think he's about five two. So uh, when we were walking down the street. If we were to be walking towards each other and he saw me, I think he'd probably go on the other side of the street. If not, I would certainly do that. I don't really want to have much to do with that fellow anymore. So, so the moral of the story there is don't trust anyone shorter than five foot two. Uh, and then yes, anyone five, two and a half. five foot two and a half. And then <laughs> if anyone who's got narrow eyes, if the eyes are too close together, that's definitely a no trust zone. <laughs> Yeah, no, 
and now let's stop now because actually <laughs> uh, I had quite a, a lot of work in, in the racing industry and I can tell you there's some amazing guys who are shorter than 5'2", some jockeys. And, uh, no, I can't do that. So I'm not, I'm not buying into that point. I don't know about the narrow eyes story. Uh, that's that's a, uh, cool. I don't think James Henderson's got narrow eyes. In fact, I think he's got more like Zuma eyes. He's got uh, more space on the other side of his head. So who knows? What are we talking now? Making it was like, I don't know, dude. You along. went down. You got on this train, bro. I'm just trying to get us off it, man. <laughs> uh, cool. So let's take some so questions. Okay, cool. But let's, let's take questions from our audience. Um, you ready? Yeah. Katlecho's got some YouTube. Uh, we got some YouTube followers here. Alec, are you ready? Here we go. All right. So the first question comes from Benedict. Right? He asks... What defines a thoroughbred journalist? Somebody who can't do anything else, Benedict. Somebody who just has to be a journalist, whether they earn, they earn peanuts, uh, whether they, they, uh, um, they're abused in, in the work that they're doing, and, and many journalists are, uh, work under very difficult circumstances. They've just got to serve. They've just got to get out there. It's a calling like a nurse, uh, like a school teacher. Um, it, it is just a, thorough, a thoroughbred, you know. Some journalists can become editors. Some can become media entrepreneurs like, like myself. Um, but some journalists just can't do anything. Barry Sargent was a thoroughbred. Chris Dane is a thoroughbred. And uh, in, in, in my experience, I haven't met too many of them. These are people who would give up the whole world. Yeah, Barry, as an example, was an LLB and at a time that he came into journalism. He came as a very junior job with uh, the letter David Carton, Sunday Times in 1983. And he said to me, and I'll never forget this because this is what a thoroughbred would say. I uh, asked him, why, are you coming? why do you want to be a journalist? You're an LLB. You can go be an advocate. He said, because there is no more noble job to do. And I guess that's what it's that's what defines it. If you are if you call to it, if you're a, if you believe that you really are serving, and, and this is the most noble uh, occupation you could possibly um, have, then you're a thoroughbred. Awesome. So we have another one from Stembi So. He asks, um, "Can emotion ever be separate from journalistic output?" Uh, it should always be separate because we make our biggest mistakes when we allow ourselves to become emotionally involved. I'll give you a very good example. For years, um, I, I mentioned to Matt a bit earlier that, that I was involved in the racing industry and I, I owned horses, I bred horses. I went on a sabbatical for a couple of years and, and uh, uh, bred and farmed horses. Um, and got very involved in at a point in time in the, the racing governance community and met a guy they called Marcus Euster. And Marcus Euster was this unbelievably good businessman, or so we all believed at the time. He fooled the whole world. He fooled the smartest people in New York, London, and, of course, very easily in Johannesburg, myself included. And I, I just believed, as we do as South Africans, we get very loyal towards people. Um, emotionally involved, emotionally attached. And when, when the, 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 the sign-off story broke on day one, I wrote to our community saying, I need to find out what the hell's going on here. 
it doesn't look good, but let me find out. And after, uh, I didn't say he was innocent or guilty or anything like that. I just didn't know. Um, but knowing him or having known him for so many years, uh, there was a bit of emotion that came in that clearly said to me, uh, give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Everybody else, it seemed, that jumped to the conclusions. Anyway, I then, uh, it didn't take me long to find out. When I spoke to his, to a close friend who said, what, what can I I got the idea that, uh, yeah, Mr. Yuster had done things that even those who, who, who were his bosom buddies, uh, who were very close to him, uh, realized. I hadn't seen him for 18 months, but even so, given that, that I'd had a, a relation, I served on a, a board within the Pumalela board, Racing Association board, and I'd seen uh, what a, what a what a smart guy he was. I mean, when he became, when he wrote his chartered accountant's exam, he was the top in the country. He was very smart, but sociopaths. And if you add brilliance to a sociopathic uh, personality, you're, you've got someone who's just too clever for me. Just hold on. What the fuck is going on here, Sanal? The live video. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. People are commenting funny shit on YouTube. Okay. Let's carry on. Sorry, man. It's just distracting as hell. <laughs> All right, so we have the last one from Avnish. Um, he asks, if South African media was your grandchild, what words of wisdom would you have for them? Ish, grandchild. Oh, haven't got any grandkids yet, Sanish. So uh, <clears throat> I know I look older than I am, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but a very good question. I'm looking forward to grandchildren one day. Um, just be true to yourself. Uh, don't, don't, don't allow uh, money to become your overriding principle. Uh, money is just energy. It'll flow to the places where it should flow to, and it rewards, the universe rewards effort. It rewards honesty and integrity, even though sometimes you look around you and you think, what's going on here? How? come uh, these people are uh, uh, flourishing when they are blatantly not um, the kind of people that, that are doing good and doing the right thing. But I would say in media, just do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Be authentic. Be yourself. Uh, if, you, you, um, if, you don't, if you stop asking questions and you start believing that you actually know everything, then you need to get out of media. If you if you are curious and you can keep your feet on the ground and you can understand that uh, the first and most important quality you you have as a as a journalist is humility because you really don't know shit you really don't uh, if you if you put uh, ten people in a room and you ask them to describe something they've all watched. Uh, you'll find 10 different stories because people perceive it from their own angle. Your job as a journalist is to, or in the media, is to try and get those 10 uh, reports and to make of them the most truthful story that you can. And so often the, the, the truth is what is hidden from us. And a final point I would say to the, to the media um, as my grandchild is Keep attracting or try harder to attract the best talent and make it 
good place for them to stay because we are in a democracy unreliant on two things. There's only two things that keep a democracy going. The one is the court of law, and that takes time. The wheels of justice grind slowly. They grind finely, but they take a long time. And the other is the court of public opinion. And if in the court of public opinion, which is the media, it can get hijacked by vested interests, then you will find that those vested interests will prey upon the people that you, as a media, must be the bulwark against. So don't get too close to the vested interests. Remember always that you are serving the public. You're, a, you're in the service business. You're serving the community. You're not serving the guy who pays your adverts uh, for your ads. You're serving the person who listens or reads you. I love that. Just one last question for you, Alec, and then we're going to wrap up. Uh, but um, why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Did you know, Matt, I, I get out literally. I, I, I kid you not, at about quarter to five, five o'clock every morning. And I can't wait to get into the day. I've, I'm one of those very, very lucky people who got into the job, his first job. My first job was as a, as a trainee financial journalist. Well, first proper job. Um, and... Uh, it, it, it just was, I just landed in the place that I live. Uh, I've learned so much over the years. I've traveled a lot. Um, I've been able to fulfill my, uh, my inner, my soul's passion, which is, which is wisdom, pursuit of wisdom. Met so many smart people and keep meeting smart people. And I get to, I get to read and to, to, to absorb and to learn about stuff as a, as a, as work, you know, most people have to do work, real work. Um, I just do that as as, uh, as a way to make my income. So, and I, I just, I, I think that that's really what it's all about. Steve Jobs at the, I mean, if you haven't watched, I'm sure you have, Matt, but many people um, who you reach out to, if they haven't watched the 2009 commencement um, speech at Stanford University, remember Jobs only went to university for six months. So for him to be asked to do the, the commencement speech at Stanford, one of the great universities in the world, was like a huge deal. He thought about it a lot. And what he said there, there's so much in there. It's a very short speech, about 10 or 12 minutes. One of the things he said there is that when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you ask yourself, if I've got to do today what I'm going to do today for the rest of my life, uh, would I be excited doing it? Would I be happy doing it? And if the answer is no, then look for something else and keep looking because as Jobs says, when it happens, it's an affair of the heart and you'll know what it is. You'll know what it is. And, and I was one of those unbelievably fortunate human beings that my affair of the heart started at a, in, my first, in my first job and it's, it's just got bigger. Alec, thank you for being on the Matt Brown Show and for giving us the opportunity to tell your story. I much appreciate it. Hey, it's a pleasure, man, and you've got a unique style <laughs> and, and a lovely style. Well done. Well done, Matt, and all the best to you. And, and uh, you know, keep, keep, keep sharing the wisdom. Sharing Thanks for the, checking the, out the, the Matt Brown Show, guys. And if you'd like it, to get the Kung Fu put in your ninja, check out digitalkungfu.ca. And I really appreciate the, the chat we had today. It's been cool. Thanks. You're a rock star, dude. Chat to you soon. Ciao. Cheers.
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.